Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? That was Justice Sonia Sotomayor this week grilling the Solicitor General of Mississippi on what it would mean for the court's legitimacy if it does what Mississippi wants it to do, overturn Roe v. Wade. It was perhaps the most widely quoted portion, at least among liberals, from an oral argument that revealed a court deeply divided over an issue that stirs up passions among tens of millions of Americans. Sotomayor's premise was that, as she called it, the stench of politics will cloud a court ruling to strike down Roe because it will be perceived as the inevitable result of Donald Trump getting to name three Supreme Court justices who pleased his conservative pro-life base. But is there any middle ground left for the court to avoid a momentous political upheaval? We'll talk to Linda Greenhouse, who covered the court for years for the New York Times and author of the new book, Justice on the Brink, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, a pretty sobering oral argument the other day on the Mississippi abortion case. I think a lot of us uh, were expecting the court to try to find, or at least those middle justices led by Roberts, trying to find a sort of middle ground here, some kind of split the difference way of not overturning Roe, but still doing something that advances the pro-life cause. But what was increasingly clear, the more you listen to it, is it really doesn't look like there is a middle way. This may be, you know, a black or white yes or no ruling from the court in which there simply is no middle ground. Yeah. I mean, there's two problems here for people who would like to find some kind of middle ground. One is what you just said. I think, you know, right now you have viability as a middle ground. Viability of the fetus. Of the fetus survive to survive outside, outside the womb, 23, 24 weeks, whatever, whatever it is. And that's, you know, pretty clear cut and kind of understandable. And, and I think you know, the law likes, you know, clarity. But if you move away from that and you try to come up with some other number, like the 15-week standard uh, that the Mississippi law has, well, what's the principle uh, behind that, and how do you sustain it? And so, so just as a as a substantive matter, it, it becomes very difficult. And then the other problem is for the people who would be in favor of that, there just aren't the votes. This is binary. 
because there are essentially two sides to this issue on the current Supreme Court, with maybe one justice somewhere in the middle who's looking for that middle ground, and that's uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah, and it's so it's it's increasingly looking like a you know although like earlier in this week I thought there was a chance that Justice Roberts might manage to you know kind of play it out and get himself an additional vote and kind of create some sort of a split decision and that was like you know my initial reaction after the day of the oral argument listening to it again I really am coming around to the conclusion that this is just a six three decision with Roe and Casey effectively overturned. The, re- the real question is, how overt are they going to be about it? Are they still going to kind of try to dress up uh, the new jurisprudence with some sort of standard and not say the words Roe is overturned? Will that matter? Well, I mean, you know, will they be able to fool anyone into thinking that that isn't right. effectively what's yeah. going to happen? I mean, the problem, and we'll get into this with Linda Greenhouse, uh, is that, I mean, viability is written into the Casey decision, which is the companion right. for Roe, the one that upheld Roe. And you know, given that that language is in there, you know, I mean, you've got to, if you're going to junk viability as your standard, you are junking, yeah. you know, one of the two pillars right. of the start. Right. There's no, there's no question, here. right. Yeah. There's no question that Roe versus Wade and Casey will be overturned. The only question is, Will a will they some, say it? some kind of well will will they say it and will and how some will kind, they say it and, yeah. and how will they say it and will some kind of a constitutional right to an abortion be retained and for the reasons we were talking about before it seems hard to see how that would happen but I I got to say I'm no I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Linda Greenhouse because I, I remember back in the day when I was a, a legal affairs reporter, I remember people used to sometimes refer to Linda Greenhouse as the 10th justice. Sometimes people call the Solicitor General the 10th justice, but also Linda Greenhouse because the justices uh, back then would, first of all, she covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times for something like 40 years, all told. But the justices used to read her coverage of, of oral arguments and of their cases and decisions you know, like the way a lot of people study Supreme Court opinions and they or, they or would, their Twitter notifications or now their Twitter <laughs> notifications. Right. And, and, you know, and, and they would often look to see whether their opinions were quoted in or dissents or in her decisions. So she had this kind of outside influence on the court back then. Well, those days are gone. First of all, you know, the makeup, the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court these days is such that the Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times will still have influence, but will never again be called the 10th justice. <laughs> yeah. So what I I was really struck by David Brooks's column today about what the impact of a reversal of Roe, whether it's explicit or just, you know, de facto, is going to have on our politics. And, you know, clearly, you know, at, at a minimum, there's going to be battles in every state legislature about where to draw the line. Well, on, Mike, let me on, let me jump abortion. in and say that yeah. it's it's actually, I think, going to be even more pronounced than maybe the Brooks column recognized, which is that in at least two major battleground states, Michigan and Wisconsin, who are going to have very hard fought elections next year for their governorship, Both of those states have what are known as zombie anti-abortion laws. They've got historic laws that were passed, you know, in the 
19 teens, 1920s or 1930s that regulate a woman's ability to use contraception and or access to abortion services. So you're not going to be waiting to see legislatures fighting in those two states. There are laws on the books where you might actually begin to see attorneys general or district attorneys Hmm. enforcing them. So those laws are just kind of lying dormant. That's and right. they won't have to. They're on the books. They, they were never they won't revealed. Have to pass them again. No. Wow. So I, I that's fascinating because I was not aware of that, and that's you know is certainly something that will come up right away. But I was thinking, you know, beyond that, Biden appointed this Supreme Court commission looking at ways whether the structure of the court should be changed, more justices added, end of lifetime tenure. It would seem that a reversal of Roe. Now that'll come in. After the commission weighs in, right, Victoria? I mean, because they they were 180 days. So we're not going to get this decision till the end of June, early July. The, The commission will have to make its recommendations before that. But the writing's on the wall. I think the commission. So so first of all. It would be shocking if this decision comes down before next summer. Typically, these blockbuster decisions are very carefully written, fought over, you know, wordsmithed for months and months and months. And they come down right before they go on vacation. Right before they go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they can go so and hide like, yeah, out of here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun reading it. We're gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but unclear, you know, of course it could come down sooner than that because, you know, this does seem to be one of those issues that, let's just say, these justices have been thinking about for a long time. So they, they might already have a bunch of stuff pre-written for all right, But either know. way, but, e- e- the commission know. is going to sort of, you know, grapple with and maybe come out with perhaps Congress should consider adding members of the Supreme Court or ending lifetime tenure or, you know, any one of a number of things. But either way, there's going to be political pressure on the Democrats in Congress to do something right away. Right. That. And also, let's not forget that the other thing that's likely to happen, the other thing that's going to happen at the same time is we're all going to be waiting to find out whether or not Breyer retires right around the time that this decision is also coming down, potentially teeing up another Supreme Court, epic Supreme Court justice battle. Yeah, although it's a liberal for a liberal, so it probably will not be quite as contentious as it otherwise would be, right? You know, he'll Biden will be able to get his next pick through if Breyer does retire. But I mean, the the last words of Brooks's column, I think, are really worth you know thinking about. We're now trying to deal with a miserably complex issue in a brutalized political culture. Majorities don't rule in this country. Polarized minorities do. The evidence this week is that the post-Roe politics would make even our current politics seem tame. I'm not sure our democracy is strong enough for that. Something to think about there. Talk about Um, sobering, yeah. Yeah, um, sobering. One other point I'd like to bring up before we get to Linda Greenhouse, uh, and that is we just got the news as we tape on Friday afternoon that John Eastman, the uh, law professor who was um, writing the playbook for Trump's attempted coup, is going to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights to not testify before the January 6th committee. And now he's the second 
person to do that, uh, Jeffrey Clark, who was um, the uh, uh, acting <laughs> assistant chief of the civil division, who was going to actually do Trump's bidding at the Justice Department until it was clear that everybody else at the Justice Department would resign uh, if he did, is also invoking his Fifth Amendment rights. And I, the more I think about this, is it strikes me this may well be checkmate for the committee, that it can't get around, it cannot refer anybody to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution for invoking a constitutional right. So what is what is his criminal exposure here other than not it, refusing to lawyer, testify? His yeah. lawyer, Charles Burnham, wrote a letter to the committee saying Mr. Eastman doesn't believe he engaged in any illegal conduct, but comments. But what is he but what is made. he being what is he being accused of? Like like a Well, like, he's been like accused of Right. Well, yeah, yeah, but attempting to you know, overthrow the results of the of an election. So right. although I can't really, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I worked as a consultant for a group that filed a bar complaint against John Eastman. So I, I probably can't go too much into Eastman himself. You know, the, the potential criminal charges that he faces is, is basically a conspiracy, you know, conspiracy to incite an insurrection. Uh, so there, there are a variety of potential criminal. Is he under investigation for that? No, we don't know that he is. But I mean, does that uh, matter? It doesn't matter. No. Well, you do have to like before you can assert a Fifth Amendment privilege, you you ha do have to have some sort of credible reason to suspect that you may be criminally. It would not be uh, difficult expo exposed. Would not be difficult to find commentary from many sources, including members, Democrats yeah. on the committee and in Congress, saying Eastman was doing some pretty shady stuff that may have uh, amounted to criminal conduct. Okay, so are we going to see? Are we going to see the committee hall both him and Clark up and have a like a, you know, a made for television moment where they say we respect your right to. They could do that. Yeah, they could do that. And, and you know, you do have to physically, sh you know, if you're subpoenaed to appear before Congress, you do have to physically show up and assert the Fifth Amendment. Right. And I when I worked on the Hill, I worked on a number of investigations where we had people who took the Fifth Amendment in order to not testify before us. In in general, we always did that behind closed doors because we didn't think that people should be held up for to scorn or ridicule for invoking their constitutional rights. That being said, I should say that we were kind of the rarest of committee to actually I was say, do that. I mean, don't we the, remember Ollie yeah, North going absolutely. up there and over and over again asserting they the love, Fifth Amendment? They love, right? you know, yeah. like committees love doing that. And it's hard to imagine the January 6th committee but generally not forcing it's that civil issue. Liberties, civil libertarians and liberal Democrats who decried such tactics as hauling people before an open committee meeting to invoke a constitutional right. The only reason to do that is to somehow bring scorn uh, and ridicule upon them, uh, you know. Which is what Joe McCarthy did. In yeah, the right. yeah. To, make a, to make a spectacle, to make a spectacle out of someone's, right, right. you know. But, someone, you but know, don't but. we think that's what's going to happen? <laughs> I, I I think that the committee is going to have a hard time doing that. I think there'll probably some hardliners, you know, maybe Jamie Raskin wants to do that and Adam Schiff. But I think there are going to be some people who say, I, I shouldn't say Raskin. No, he's a, I, he's I a he's civil a, liberties guy. Yeah. He may yeah. balk at doing that. So I, I don't know. We'll see. But I, it does strike me as 
a pretty big problem for this committee, and I think what we're going to see is more and more people doing that. Let's well, now not it's remember, too late for it's too late for Bannon, right? I mean, well, I mean, he could retroactively if he, had, if he had started to testify. If he had started to testify, he could have the argument could be made he'd already waived waived his and privilege. therefore can, you cannot re- then go back and try to invoke your Fifth Amendment. I rights. guarantee, but he I hadn't. guarantee you, he's got like a bunch of lawyers looking into this right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you're <laughs> going to see all. He's definitely going to try that. The witnesses one. do that over and over. And by the way, when you ask about criminal exposure, let's remember there is the Fannie Willis Fulton County in criminal investigation into events in Georgia, which ropes in a. A lot of these people, including Mark Meadows, who was making, you know, personal calls and visits to Georgia. So, yeah, they all will have grounds to invoke the Fifth Amendment. It'll be really interesting to see how the committee, you know, tries but I'm just to thinking, find a way around this. If you're the prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington who is getting prepared to go to trial in the Bannon case, like you can't you're not going to reverse course. I mean, if he no, now, no, no, no. But, he, but Bannon could, you know, withdraw, agree to go before the committee, and, and then and then and his then invoke amendment. his Fifth Amendment. That's right. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah he but could. let's let, let's do pause for a moment and consider the fact that the you know a former very very high ranking official within the Department of Justice has just invoked the Fifth Amendment. And uh, a law professor, it's not a good yeah. justice. It's really not a. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not a good look. Yeah. It's not. It's not a good look. But yeah. no. um, but it is a constitutional right. Anyway, speaking of constitutional rights, nobody knows more about it than um, Linda Greenhouse, our guest. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Linda Greenhouse, who for many years was the chief Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times and is author of the new book, Justice on the Brink. Linda, welcome to Skullduggery. Happy to be here, Mike. So quite an oral argument the other day on the Mississippi case, uh, after listening to it, it now seems like Roe versus Wade is on the brink. A lot of us were surprised at how dug in both sides were, which seemed to suggest that there's no middle ground here. There's no way to split the difference. Do you see anything other than a complete reversal of Roe versus Wade coming out of this? What's your take? Yeah, you know, I mean, as you said, I've been watching the court a long time, and I thought I was beyond being surprised by the court. I was shocked by the tenor of the argument, by the the hostility radiating from the chief justice and the other justices on, on that side of the street. So I've actually never seen, I mean, since this issue was joined, the issue of banning abortion before fetal viability, which is the question in the Mississippi case, I have seen no prospect for middle ground because either women have the right to terminate a non-viable pregnancy or they don't. And I, there's no there's no middle ground. People who are, you know, interpreted the argument as somehow the chief justice is searching for some moderate. There is no moderate. It's all or nothing. There's either a right to abortion or there isn't. And I'm afraid at the end of the day here, the answer is there isn't. So you do see a Supreme Court decision coming down the pike that will explicitly overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey? Well, I mean, of course, that's that's a question. 
if I had to put money on it, I would say yes, but they certainly would have a way of looking like they're kind of finessing the issue. So what would that be? What would the finesse be? It would be, it would, I mean, it would, in, in my view, it wouldn't be real and it would be urgently incumbent on people like you and me, people who know how things work and can explain it, make sure the public isn't fooled. You know, it would be, well, 15 weeks is enough time. And, you know, uh, uh, this whole notion of viability is all kind of made up and blah, blah. None of that's true. Viability is not made up. 15 weeks is not enough time. And if that's what the court says, then the right to abortion is just thrown into a cocked hat. Because if a 15-week ban is constitutionally acceptable, Texas has a six-week ban. There are some states that are striving to enact um, a zero-week ban. And, you know, what's the principle behind that? So one more beat on this. You quote in your book the court's actual ruling in Casey. And I'll just read the section you, you quoted here. The Casey decision made the scope of the abortion right unmistakably clear, quote, this is the court, a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. So how can you finesse a ruling that does not overturn Casey if you're ditching viability as your standard? Don't misunderstand me, Michael. I mean, I'm not saying that that would be an intellectually honest or acceptable thing to do. But I, some people have interpreted John Roberts' questions about viability as suggesting that he's that's a needle that he's trying to thread. What I'm saying is there is no such needle and there is no such thread. And you're right. It's all I want to just press on that a little bit just to make it as explicit as we can for our listeners. I mean, you talked about John Roberts being openly hostile to the other side. And I guess it's on the, the idea of viability as some kind of a bright line. And I think some people have said that maybe he's searching for another bright line, and maybe that's the 15 weeks point. And you're saying that that can't be a bright line, that there's no principle really behind that. And so it is a slippery slope. And ultimately, you know, it, it'll be 12 weeks and then eight weeks and then six weeks. And then it's it's essentially gone completely. Right. You don't you don't see any way that the court formulates some new firewall for Roe versus Wade for legal abortion. No, I, I, I don't. I mean, I mean, they could speak such words, but it wouldn't have that would just be words. It wouldn't have content. What, what I mean is so the most common question that a justice asks a lawyer in the courtroom is, okay, counsel, what's your limiting principle? And that means, you know, we're not here to just resolve this particular dispute. We're making law for the whole country. If we decide this case your way, if we buy what you're selling, what's the next case? And the case after that, and the case after that. So what would be the limiting principle? Viability is a pretty darn good limiting principle. After viability, the fetus is able to have independent life before viability, it's not. So there's no way to go but to the erasing of any meaningful right to abortion if that's the way the court goes. 
There was something else about the oral argument that struck me as being kind of just uh, surprising. And, and you, you mentioned the, the overt hostility of many of the kind of more conservative justices and how surprised you were with that. Were you surprised by the what, what I took to be almost the overt pleading by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor to their to their counterparts, to their fellow justices? It, it, to me, it almost sounded like they were begging them to respect sorry stare decisis yeah no thank you that's a good question um i would distinguish between justice Breyer and justice sotomayor in, in this way i think justice Breyer is kind of heartbroken i mean of course i wasn't in the courtroom i didn't see his body language but hearing knowing him and hearing his voice He's got to realize that his project, which has been in these recent years of increasingly of an increasingly conservative court to kind of keep the court looking like a court and not a bunch of politicians. And that's over. And and that was that was the plea in his voice, you know, kind of get us back on some kind of track that the public can respect. Sotomayor, I think, has long since accepted that reality. What she's doing, not only in that argument, and we assume in the dissenting opinion that will come, and in her other recent dissenting opinions, and I I go through this in in, in the book, Injustice on the Brink, in some detail, she's writing for history. You know, she knows that history is going to pass some kind of judgment on the court in these times. And she wants history to understand what has happened. She did this, I mean, quite brilliantly in her dissenting opinions from the, the head-snapping string of uh, federal executions that the Trump administration carried out in its last seven months, 13 executions after uh, 17 years of no federal executions. And that's, that's her project, just making sure that future generations understand exactly what's been going on here. Before we leave Breyer and Sotomayor, what about Justice Kagan? She was remarkably, she asked a few questions, but she was rather quiet. She, she was rather quiet. Um, that surprised me and a lot of people. She's very strong on the bench, usually. So either Justice Sotomayor's passion had kind of taken all the air out of that side of the room, you might say, or maybe they discussed it in advance. And, you know, Sonia, you're going to take the laboring oar here. I don't know, but but it is worth noting it was a bit of a puzzle. The um, justice who surprised me the most uh, was Kavanaugh in this, because unlike the picture of Kavanaugh that, you know, Democrats used in the confirmation hearings that he's a right wing ideologue. I, I always viewed him as more a split the difference guy who cared about what people thought about him and wants to be in the mainstream of civic life in America. And yet there he was staking out pretty strong argument for overturning Starry decisis, listing all the times the court has done so, suggesting the court could do so once again here. Were you as surprised by Kavanaugh as I was? And does that foreshadow where he's going to come down on this? Or could he just have been, as justices often do in oral arguments, posing questions that do not necessarily reflect where they're going to come down? 
I'll answer your second question first. Uh, what do I think he's going to do? I, I, I think he's going to be fully in there for overturning. Your first question, was I surprised by him? Actually, no. That was typical Kavanaugh. You're quite right to say that he cares what people think about him. He wants to be seen as the thoughtful, kind of moderate in the middle, whatever, whatever. And he often, both in his performance on the bench and in his separate opinions, will go through this kind of, um, you know, agonized weighing of the two sides. You know, these are, this is such a difficult question. There are two sides here. There are two interests here. You have to pick. No, actually, Brett, the court has already picked. The court picked 50 years ago. The court has reaffirmed that picking, you know, in your lifetime. And it's just phony rhetoric. And, and he goes through that in case after case. And at the end of the day, he's right there with the conservatives. This is classic Kavanaugh. His conception that the court in a case like this should perhaps be neutral. I guess you don't buy that. I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, we have 50 years of life under Roe against Wade. There is no neutrality. There's no ground of neutrality. You're either going to affirm that there is a right to abortion or you're going to... Well, the, the there's no neutrality, but <laughs> it is not necessarily phony rhetoric to say that this is a hard issue, that there are people who have very strong views on the other side, sincerely held, that are different than yours. And I mean, is it really productive to just sort of dismiss somebody, a conservative justice wrestling with these issues by saying it's all just phony rhetoric? Well, I'll just say this. I mean, what's going to count is the bottom line. How's he going right. to vote? So, I mean, let, let me give you an example as to why I sound, maybe I sound to you unduly cynical about Brett Kavanaugh, but the last abortion case that came before the court before this was the case from Louisiana called June Medical two, three years ago. And the question was um, whether the state of Louisiana could require doctors who perform abortions to get admitting privileges in local hospitals, which in Louisiana they can't do. So uh, the, the record in that case showed that the doctors had been trying to get admitting privileges and failing for up to five years. OK, so the the lower court, the Fifth Circuit upheld the law. The clinics came to the court with a you know, request for emergency stay of that opinion so that they would have time to file their uh, petitions for cert. And the court granted the stay. Kavanaugh dissented. And he wrote one of these, oh, this is such a hard issue and blah, 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 and blah. And the, the doc, we should just, you know, stay our hand and let the doctors go back and try again. Try again. They've been trying for five years. So, you know, that, that's what I mean. That was an example of him looking like he's really wrestling with a hard issue. But if his vote had prevailed, there'd be, there would have been one doctor left in the entire state of Louisiana who was legally qualified to perform abortions. So, Linda, the one uh, justice that we haven't mentioned yet is the one who is, I guess, the key character in some ways in your book, Amy Coney Barrett, because it's her her presence on the bench that transforms the court, which you chronicle that this uh, past term. Was she in character during these oral arguments, or was there anything in her questioning or her remarks that you found surprising? Oh, I found her questions shocking. 
was she in character? I think what she was was revealing her character, which has not previously been revealed on that kind of stage, right? Because her her most interesting writings so far have been a concurring opinion or an action on the shadow docket. But here she was actually saying, she, uh, mother of seven, that, you know, if, if a woman's worried about what motherhood is going to mean for her career prospects or her life in the world, um, what's your problem? Just go ahead and have the baby because we have all these safe haven laws around the country where you can just drop the baby off and be free of the whole matter. I mean, really? That's almost a parody. I mean, I credit her sincerity. That's surely what she believes if she believes that, you know, women are designed to have all the babies that God give them, gives them. But wow, you know, imagine that kind of life. I mean, if I had if I had a, a, a baby-sized doll and a, and a basket to spare, and if I knew her address, I'd be strongly tempted to. Well, I think she was just making a more limited argument that the option of adoption was not addressed in Roe and Casey, and that you know, she was just raising the question, should it be a factor in the, in, in the analysis? I mean, I, I doubt somebody who had what, I mean, she gave birth to five <laughs> babies. Uh, she's would be completely dismissive of the burdens of pregnancy, but isn't it, isn't it possible she was looking for some, you know, she was making a, a narrower point than um, the broader one you're suggesting. I, I, you know, I, I'm going to have to disagree. I mean, if a woman's pregnant, she's either going to have an abortion, a miscarriage, or a baby. There's really no two ways about it. And what Amy Barrett was saying was, have the baby. Somebody might adopt it. It'll be taken care of when you leave it off in a basket at the firehouse, whatever, whatever, you'll be free of it. So have the baby. I mean, please, I, I, can, I can hardly discuss it with a straight face. <laughs> so going out on a limb... <laughs> Um, what's this final decision going to look like? Is it going to be 5-3-1-6-3? How does it come down? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. But if I really had a guess, I would say 6-3. because 6-3 with Roberts joining the majority. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking if I'm John Roberts and I've got these five justices to my right, who are going to write this opinion. And I've got three justices to my left, and I certainly don't agree with them. My entire adult life, I've been you know, committed to overturning Roe against Wade when the situation arose. Even if I think this is disastrous for the court or even bad for the country, or let's say bad for the Republican Party. Remember, John Roberts is down there in Palm Beach County uh, working for George Bush. So he's a political animal, just like Others of them, you know, all of them in some all ways. of them. Go ahead. Yeah. So he's you know, I think I think he'll just go along. Actually, that's what I think. Well, I, I, I would be even more shocked if that happened. I mean, Roberts, everybody was talking the other day about how Susan Collins, when she met with Kavanaugh and decided to vote for him, did so because Kavanaugh agreed with Roberts formulation that that Roe was settled law. Kavanaugh didn't actually, we don't know if Kavanaugh actually used that language, but Roberts certainly did. 
And if he did, how can he reconcile settled law with the opinion you think he's about to write? I don't think he can. I mean, you know, the column I have up on the Times this morning says, the, my, my last sentence or so says, um, we know what they're going to do. The mystery is how they're going to explain it. And uh, I don't know, but, but they've got the power. This looming decision is, is clearly the culmination of a many-year project to reshape the Supreme Court. And I think, you know, this this one day, this oral argument and this forthcoming decision is going to be remembered for a very, very long time. But it is not the only element of this project. There's a lot more that has been behind how the Supreme Court is going to be reshaped. I'm curious, you know, one of the things that people have been worried about with kind of overturning Roe and Casey is the the kind of the domino effects that it's going to have in other areas of Supreme Court jurisprudence having to do with, you know, marriage, with a bunch of other issues. Do you see that kind of knock on that domino effect looming in the next few years? Well, actually, I mean, it's interesting because Amy Barrett during the argument asked Scott Stewart, the Mississippi Solicitor General, who was arguing on behalf of the state, well, if if we go your way, um, you know, what else might might get struck down under the same kind of theory. And he says something quite remarkable. He said, basically, well, nothing else. Uh, certainly not a Bergefell, the same-sex marriage case, he said, because, um, because that sets a bright line. We know what's marriage and what's not marriage. And, you know, we don't have to wonder about that. And, and besides, it, it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, you, you know, I mean, if, go back and read John Roberts' dissenting opinion in a Bergefell, which it was, you know, flamingly conservative opinion. And look at Sam Alito, whose project now is to find a religious Obergefell victim that the court can elevate into some martyr, you know, to, on, on the altar of same-sex marriage. So, you know, it really would present the court with a bit of a dilemma if that's if that's the road they choose to go down. It's the, uh, yeah. I think he was, wasn't he also arguing that uh, th- these issues are at this point, are less controversial in American society. They're more accepted, gay marriage, for example. Now, maybe that's just rhetoric. Well, it certainly is rhetoric in the, I mean, the state of Mississippi. <laughs> you know, I mean, the dockets of of the courts are filled with, you know, the florist who won't arrange flowers, the wedding invitation designer who won't design the wedding invitation. I mean, the, the conservative judiciary is eager to get one of these cases where there's proper standing and proper, you know, lower court record so far that's mm-hmm. been that hasn't happened. So it's certainly true. There's more than a million uh, under the latest census figures, more than a million Americans in same sex marriages today. And it's unthinkable that the court would overturn a Bergefell. I, it's just unthinkable. But you can create lots of holes in anything. And there could be you know, this huge religious hole that people can, people that don't like same-sex marriage can drive through. I think that's that that's where the fight is going to devolve. You know, let me ask you a question about, I, I don't know if it's process, but what actually is going to happen now that the oral arguments are over kind of behind the scenes in the court? Because, you know, you've, you've said that this is a, at this point basically binary. I mean, either or you've predicted that it's gonna that Roe will be overturned. It will probably be a six-three decision. So how much you know, kind of 
politicking, for lack of a better word, how much do you think one side will be trying to persuade the other, uh, given how entrenched they are, how divided they are, and where you like where you think this likely will will end up? I mean, is there even any reason to for uh, justices to try to persuade the other ones? And what how do you think that'll play out? Well, so so what happens uh, is quite formalistic, actually. So this morning we're we're talking on on Friday. So at 10 o'clock this morning, the justices would would have convened in their weekly private conference to um, go over the cases that were argued this week and take a straw vote. And on the basis of that, the senior justice in the majority and the chief justice is always senior if he's in the majority will um, assign somebody himself or assign somebody else to start drafting the opinion that speaks for the majority. And the dissenters will, the senior justice in in dissent, uh, who in this case would be Breyer, will canvas his side to see who'd like to take on writing the dissent. And then they basically um, disappear into their own chambers until something's written that starts circulating. And, you know, that's that's what can be quite a long process. That's why it can take until June or July for, uh, for, for this to come to rest. But do you think one side will be trying to actually get justices from the other side to come over to their side in this case? I don't think they're going to waste that kind of time. I mean, yeah. what what I think where the where the pressure point will be is within the majority, you know, how, how to frame it, right? how to explain it. You know, as we were talking earlier, I mean, whether to put some kind of phony sheen on it that we're not really overturning Rowan Casey, we're just resetting the viability clock or, or, or whatever. I mean, they have a lot of choices to make, but I think when it comes to the bottom line, um, it's not going to be that hard. They've had a lot they've had a lot harder cases by their lights uh, to, to work out than, than this one. So let's assume that the court is going to do what you think it's going to do, which is overturn Roe or completely eviscerate it so it no longer counts. Looking forward from that, David Brooks in the New York Times, you know, wrote today in his piece, you know, with American democracy already challenged in so many ways as it is now, adding this post-Roe politics on top of it, you know, could bring it to the breaking point. And um, I have to say, he makes a compelling argument there. But like... what happens then? I mean, certainly there'll be in every state legislature huge abortion battles in you know all the time. And this you have this commission that's studying whether to change the court, adding members, ending lifetime tenure. Which of the many options out there do you see gaining traction? And would overturning Roe be enough to actually propel fundamental change in the makeup of the court? Well, in my current mood is basically forget the court, okay? What's important is what kind of political mobilization arises in the country, whether at the state level or Congress has a bill pending that would restore reproductive rights. That uh, can't pass in the current congressional makeup. Not now, but- Well, get rid of the filibuster and it can pass. Mm, You still have the House, I don't know. You know, it, it it, it was a very long project I think, as you know, Victoria said earlier, to 
bring us to this point. It's going to be a long project to get us out of this mess. I said to my 36-year-old daughter after the argument, I said, well, you know, my generation's blown it and your generation's well along. I said, it's going to be your nine-month-old daughter's generation that may be the ones that have to that have to fix this. But, uh, you know, it was a response to the David Brook column, not to sound like a Pollyanna, which I'm certainly not, but it's possible this could like reinvigorate democracy, get people really engaged and realize that their vote matters. And, you know, you've got to get people in public office that are going to reflect the will of the people, which we know is, is strongly not to overturn Roe. You can debate you know, within that very strong majority, what people think about abortion in this circumstance or that circumstance, but it's just a, a small religiously motivated minority in the country that wants the court to do what it's about to do. So we've got, you know, we've got political choices to make. I hope we can make. Could a, um, a law, if Congress passes a law that, you know, uh, codifies Roe versus Wade, wouldn't the, the current Supreme Court just uh, say it doesn't pass constitutional muster and just throw it out? Well, so there'd be two pressure points. One is, does Congress under the commerce power have the jurisdiction under the Constitution to do that? I think clearly it does. We see what's happening in the wake of the Texas SB8. Texas women are traveling interstate all over the country to exercise their still legal right to abortion. And obviously, the service of abortion exists in interstate commerce. So I think that could be overcome. The second one is, okay, we've said that there's no right to abortion, which leaves the states and Congress free to enact right to abortion legislatively. We've said there's no constitutional right to abortion, but is there a constitutional right to life of the fetus? So that's really the next stage. And there's a, you know, a movement to interpret the 14th Amendment as protecting fetal life, which would then, of course, make abortion itself unconstitutional. I mean, it would put us in the position of um, Poland, for instance. You know, here we have Ireland has legalized abortion through a public referendum. Argentina through legislation, Mexico through Supreme Court judgment. I mean, abortion is legal in the shadow of the Vatican in Italy, in Spain, in Portugal. You know, what's with this? So, you know, some people think and hope that's the next step. I want to pivot to maybe some some issues besides the, the, the Roe versus Wade, Casey, and abortion rights, because this Supreme Court term has more cases than than just this particular one. And and I think one of the things that we're particularly interested in is how the Supreme Court is possibly going to handle the uh, kind of growing tension over executive privilege and the, the possibility at that President Trump in his quest to protect some of his records from inquiry by the January 6th committee is going to once again try to take this issue all the way up to the Supreme Court and have his role in January 6th protected by the court. And I'm just sort of wondering what you think this court is going to make of these ongoing efforts by former President Trump. Well, of course, the court was pretty tough on Trump when he tried to shield his taxes from uh, uh, from the House and, and from the um, Manhattan DA 
a, a couple of terms ago. You know, I don't really have a strong instinct about how those cases would play out, but I think I'm just trying to think in my mind. I mean, I don't think that protecting the president is a high agenda item for the people on the court today. I think Trump might be quite disappointed in how those cases come out for him. They're sort of happy to see the uh, happy to see him out the door, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, the court wasn't buying what his lawyers were selling in the election cases. You can say, well, that's because those cases were just so bad and they came in so late. But, you know, Trump was just furious that his three handpicked justices weren't there for him. So, you know, I think I mean, what what my book focuses on is are the agenda items that motivate the current majority of the court. And, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned much religion, but going forward, the kind of uh, theocratization of American life is proceeding apace. There is a case that's going to be argued next week that's gotten very little attention. That's a very important case about the circumstances under which the state is obliged, not just permitted, but obliged to channel public money into parochial school tuition. And I, I have no doubt how that's going to come out either. But, you know, if, if, I, if I were listing things to watch on the court, religion would be um, very high up there. And of course, as, as Sonia Sotomayor suggested in her questionnaire, said explicitly, isn't the abortion issue all about religion? Which, of course, it is. But, you know, the Mississippi lawyer kind of flummoxed around and couldn't answer the question until Justice Alito had to offer him a helping hand and say, well, isn't it true that secular philosophers uh, have views about when life begins, too? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Justice Alito. Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> Let me just I want to ask a some more general question about the the court. You know, in the past, you know, until fairly recently, for a while anyway, um, people called the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court. He seemed to be very firmly con in control, often been swing justices. It was the Kennedy Court when he was such a, a central swing justice. Um, it doesn't seem like it's the Roberts Court anymore, really, does it? Has he sort of lost control? Well, I mean, of course, we'll see this term, but it certainly seemed that once Amy Barrett came in and took the place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg leaving, John Roberts with five justices to his right by many measures. Um, you know, I, I was almost feeling empathy for the guy, right? I mean, it's it's very ironic. Had had Hillary Clinton been elected and been able to fill the Scalia vacancy, Roberts would have had five justices to his left, headed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who who was the senior associate justice on, on that side of the street. And he would have lost the ability to influence events. So he, you know, he skirts that disaster when Trump is elected and Trump by handing, handing him three justices. Uh, now he's got five to his right. I mean, that's really quite a, quite a trajectory. Um, he's in a tough spot, assuming as I do that he really cares about the institutional health of the court. You know, the, the title on the first chapter of my book is The Triumph of John Roberts. And that what I talk about in that chapter is the preceding term, the 2019-2020 term in which the chief was in the majority and in control of every important issue. I think he, he dissented only twice in that entire term, which is an amazing record. 
you know, and then once Ruth Ginsburg dies, it's September of 2020, and Trump plows ahead with Amy Barrett, everything changes. Well, that does bring up my favorite Linda Greenhouse anecdote, which is when you retired from the New York Times as its Supreme Court reporter, there was a reception for you at the court that seven of the nine justices actually showed up for. And one of them was Chief Justice Roberts, who uh, commented that commenting on your work was, quote, like asking a corpse to comment on the work of the coroner. Um, after uh, reading your latest book and hearing your latest analysis, uh, do you think Roberts would still show up for a reception honoring you? And secondly, who are the two justices who did not show up? <laughs> um the ones who didn't show up, I think, as I remember, were uh, Scalia and Alito. Okay. Thomas did? I always had a nice relationship with Clarence Thomas, actually. Yes, yes, he did. Would Robert show up today? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's a civilized person. You know, I mean, w w one thing that really surprised me, I'm not, I, I am kind of avoiding your question because I don't want to, you know, it's presumptuous of me, but uh, one thing that really shocked me in the argument, Roberts is a man who is usually in such precise control of his public persona. I mean, he really is kind of the ultimate blank slate. You really never know what the guy is really thinking. But boy, you sure did on Wednesday. I mean, I felt he was barely in control of himself. He was trying hard but failing to control himself. So... Um, but he usually is in pretty good control. And, and so, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, one, I'll, if you like, you know, anecdotes about me, I'll tell you another one. It was the, I think it was 2013, uh, June of 2013, which was the term that the court decided the horrible Shelby County case that cut the guts out of the Voting Rights Act. That was a Robert's opinion. And I was, uh, I had been invited to the Fourth Circuit Judicial Conference. Well, I won't get to what a judicial conference is, but it's a big deal kind of thing once a year. And the chief justice happens to be the what they call the circuit justice for the Fourth Circuit. And we were at the Greenbrier, you know, old plantation south. And um, I spent the entire day in my hotel room writing a news analysis of what had happened in the Shelby County case and a couple other cases. I go down to the Black Tie Banquet that evening, having been in my room all day. And first person I run into is the chief justice who said, well, Linda, have you been up in your room all day polishing those adverbs and those adjectives? And I thought, oh, my God, does he have a hidden camera in my hotel room? <laughs> I was speechless. <laughs> well, as you were. Well, um, just last question uh, uh, in the conclusion of your book, which is really an account of the past year in the, in the Supreme Court, the term took place when Justice Ginsburg passed. You write, in the end, it was not quite the term conservatives had hoped for, nor the term that liberals had most feared. I gather you think when you write the history of this term, you're not going to be able to say that. I think that's true. But let me also say about the last term is what I also say in the conclusion is that a term of the Supreme Court is a snapshot in a dynamic process. And 
the important, maybe the most important things the court did in the term that I'm writing about was agree to hear the Mississippi case, which they certainly didn't have. I mean, just granting review to Mississippi was a pretty shocking event. Uh, and the New York gun case, the two cases that have so far been argued this term that are the kind of signal cases. So, you know, those cases hadn't obviously come to ground by the end of the last term, and they will this term. And I kind of look at the two terms together as part of the same enterprise. Got it. Well, um, Linda Greenhouse, I want to thank you for joining us. The book is Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Court. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks for having me.